Tonight, we will finish the area of the Old Testament that we've been working on. And when we get that done, we're going to move into the New Testament and the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events in his life in the Gospels. It's good to review when we start the series because it does have a peculiar nature to it, unlike the usual Bible classes. So I'd like to review the three lessons that were here tonight as we begin this part of the framework. The first theme that we emphasize is looking at the history of God's revelation. So we take the doctrines and we realize that God reveals certain truths in historic situations. They're married together. You can't separate the history from the doctrine and you can't separate the doctrine from the history. They're wedded together. And we, we need to remember that When God revealed himself to us down here, he didn't drop down a textbook from heaven. There's no handbook out there of the principles, for example, of spiritual warfare that are disconnected from actual history. For example, what happened in the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his army, for example, or what happened outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Ascension when Jesus rose into the heavens above all creatures. But those all happened. They're part of the set of key events of this Bible framework approach. It makes the doctrine not just ideas, but actual revelation that God exists, that God historically created the universe, that God providentially directs history toward his ultimate objective. And that's why we emphasize in point number one, the event. The Bible framework is always talking about key events. Our second theme that we emphasize in the Bible framework is the fact that we want to look at the Bible's truths systematically. That is, uh, understanding the chronological sequence involved and how God has sequenced his revelation pedagogically or in a teaching fashion. We're looking at the revealed truths as an orderly series of lessons. So each one is built on the previous lesson. From this approach, we can then understand systematic doctrine in the perspective of how each such doctrine was constructed from a series of related events at different times in biblical history. I've been recently reading a volume that's dedicated to the apologetics of Cornelius Van Til, who's now deceased. He's the man who in the 20th century, I believe, has done more to create razor-sharp apologetics for the Bible-believing Christian than anyone of that era. And he has a few words that I'd like to share with you on why it's necessary to think systematically through the scripture why it's necessary to take this truth and link it to that truth. Hook both of them to a third truth. Because although the individual truths were revealed at different times in history, God's revelation is systematic. The omniscient God thinks systematically. Let me read you a few things that emphasize uh, the first of these three things that we emphasize in this study. A study of systematic theology will help us keep and develop our spiritual balance. And the next sentence is very important. 
it enables us to avoid paying attention only to that which by virtue of our own personal temperament happens to appeal to us. Let me read that sentence again. It enables us to avoid paying attention only to that which by virtue of our own personal temperament happens to appeal to us. We all have hobby horses. So by going systematically, it disciplines us to cover everything as a related whole. I continue the quoting. Moreover, what is beneficial for the individual believer is also beneficial for the minister and in consequence for the church as a whole. It's sometimes contended that ministers need not be trained in systematic theology if only they know their Bibles. But Bible-trained instead of systematically trained preachers frequently, believe it or not, preach error. They mean ever so well um, uh, trying to do what they're trying to do. Um, but they often do appreciate uh, uh, preach, preach error. There are many Orthodox preachers today whose study of Scripture has been so limited to what it says about the soteriology, salvation doctrine, that they, they've been so limited so that they could not protect the fold of God against heretics of the person of Christ. Oftentimes they themselves even entertain definitely heretical notions on the person of Christ, though perfectly unaware of the fact. He's not trying to discourage uh, Bible teachers. He's not trying to say they're all wrong. He's just saying they can drift and, and, and unconsciously drift. It's natural, continuing his quote, to expect that if the church is strong because its ministry understands and preaches the whole counsel of God, the church will be able to protect itself best against false teaching of every sort. For example, non-indoctrinated Christians will easily fall prey to the peddlers of Russellism, and that's the theological term for Jehovah's Witness. Spiritism and all other 57 varieties of heresy with which our country abounds. One text Christians simply have no weapons of defense against these people. They may be able to quote many scriptural texts that speak, for example, concerning Russellism of eternal punishment. But the Russellite will be able to quote texts which by the sound of them taken individually tend to teach annihilation. The net result is at best a loss of spiritual power because of loss of conviction. Many times such one text Christians themselves fall prey to seducers' voices. We've already indicated that the best apologetic defense will invariably be made by him who knows the system of truth of the scripture best. And then the the final part of this quote, very, very important. The fight between Christianity and non-Christianity is, in modern times, no piecemeal affair. It is the life and death struggle between two mutually opposed life and worldviews. I think that summarizes very well the advantage of putting this framework together. And that's why this is not really a class of exegesis of the text. It's not to replace exegesis by any means. That exegesis is very important. It's just that in this particular study, 
we're trying a little different approach, more systematic to key doctrinal areas. Now, I said three themes characterize our approach here. And to remind us again, as we get to this point of Lesson 96, uh, to remind us about the structure that we're following. The third thing that we've emphasized is that we want to give a justification for our faith. This is why we believe it and how it shows and how the evidence fits together once we accept the authority of the word of God over every area of life. And then the rest of it falls together. Acceptance of the authority of the word of God over every area directly follows from the constant insistence throughout all scripture that the word of God is a revelation of the transcendent personal creator who created everything outside of himself and subsequently providentially controls his historic revelation. Tonight, I want to do a little exercise to dramatize my point as we move from the Old Testament to the New. Turn to Romans 1. This is a New Testament epistle, very familiar to us Christians. It's one of the most famous epistles of all, one of the epistles that was the source of the Protestant Reformation. Augustine was converted through what the Holy Spirit did with this epistle. If you have a piece of paper, I'm going to go through probably two dozen verses in the first three chapters of this book. I want to point out to you, as I go from verse to verse, the first three chapters of this epistle, how many times it refers to the Old Testament or uses a phrase in originally in the Old Testament. So I want to show you that most of the New Testament is really not new. It is a repeat of the Old Testament. When these apostles wrote the New Testament text, let's remember, how do you characterize the people that they were teaching the New Testament to? They were mostly Jews. In those days, they had no television, no internet, or any kind of distraction. And they learned the Old Testament very well. In fact, many of them couldn't even read. A lot of these Jewish people couldn't read, so they would memorize it. I remember going to Israel back many years ago in 1976. And when I was there, being amazed as you drove along the road and there were Muslim and Jewish kids by the side of the road. Some were sitting, some were walking with their backpacks between classes or something, I guess. And they were looking at scripture. And as you'd go by them, you could hear them reciting it in Hebrew. Or in the case of the Muslims, they were reciting it in Arabic. It was impressive to see them constantly working with a text. Now, Romans 1, let's go through these quickly. I'll give you the Old Testament texts that are alluded to or quoted in these verses. Sometimes the Old Testament is actually quoted. Other times it's mentioned uh, as a concept that the Old Testament covers. And we'll call that an allusion. So it's either a quote or an allusion to the Old Testament. Let's start with Romans 1, 7. It says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. That sounds very New Testament. But then it says, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, where's, where's that in the Old Testament? 
that salutation that we read in almost every New Testament epistle has in it the core thought of grace from God. See that phrase, grace to you? That is found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, in the blessing of the Levitical priesthood, where it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. So the very salutation in the New Testament text is really borrowed from a Levitical blessing. So in Romans 1, 7, grace seems to be a simple little innocuous word. But if you go back in the context of number six and read how the priests use that, that tells you a little bit about how to interpret it and how the apostles meant that to be taken. It's not just, hey guys, how you doing? It's a little more deeply biblical than that. In Romans 1.16, Paul begins an important argument, which we read again and again as we've looked at this epistle. He starts by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The phrase... I am not ashamed is actually an allusion to Psalm 119 verse 46, which states, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and I will not be ashamed. So Psalm 119.46 is a eulogy to the word of God as something we should never be ashamed to speak. That's the meaning. There's a richness in that. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it also tells you something else. If this is an allusion to Psalm 119, and Psalm 119 spoke of the Old Testament text, thy word have I hid in my heart, what does that tell you about how the apostles viewed the gospel? When he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's using language that in the Old Testament was used of the Mosaic Scripture. What does that tell you about the authority vested in the gospel? It's of equal authority. Right there, we have an allusion to the Old Testament. This feature fortifies our contention that the New Testament text in the day it was written was intended to be as authoritative as the Old Testament text. You go to a liberal church and they'll tell you, oh, no, 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 that's not right. The New Testament was written uh, in bits and dabs and the church had to take centuries to make up its mind and all the rest of it. And then gradually you evolve this higher idea of authority. No, the apostle by citing the New Testament in the same language as he did the Old Testament is to intended to convey the same level of authority. In Romans 1, 18 to 20, we have the basis, and this is an important argument here, and we, we need to be encouraged by this. In Romans 1, 18 to 20, we have the basis for why every person who has ever lived is responsibly for God to his eternal destiny, even those who have not heard the gospel. Well, how is that? Well, let's look at it. Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice the phrase, who suppress the truth. 
Paul is claiming here that everyone knows the truth that God is the creator and that they are responsible to him. It's a radical thing when you think about it. And I'll show you why you should be encouraged by that. Remember, Paul is writing the epistle Romans to a mixed group, including Gentiles as well as Jews. So how can Gentiles suppress the truth if they did not have any Old Testament revelation? What is the truth that they're suppressing? Crucial question for this text. This is important for us because we live in a secular society with little, if any, contact with biblical truth. We who may have unbelievers in our families, we prayed for for years, and they still reject our witness, still unpersuaded by our testimony. And we should be encouraged by what comes next in this argument of Paul. Maybe also we, we might feel unequipped or ill-equipped to engage unbelievers with arguments for the existence of God. Well, here's the answer to those problems. Romans 1.19. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Notice Paul here asserts a kind of revelation that has reached the heart of these people who do not have the Bible or do not accept the Bible. It is not that they don't know God. They do know him, but they suppress the truth. Well, if these people don't have the Bible, what sort of revelation does God hold them responsible for? Well, let's look at the next verse and follow Paul's argument. In Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, notice this, his invisible attributes, invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. Now, isn't this interesting? We're talking about truth that is invisible, God's invisible attributes. But those attributes of God are seen in his handiwork. They are seen in the physical universe. So even though they're invisible, they're manifest by what God has created. And even though it's invisible, they're clearly seen. The emphasis in the Greek here is strong between the assertion of invisible attributes and clearly seen the results of those attributes in our environment. So, therefore, everyone reasonable for how they react to visible attributes. The contention here is that the creation around us, in front of us, behind us, to the side of us, under our feet, and over our heads, this entire environment It's revelatory of the carefully planned engineering of God, the creator. It's one reason, by the way, why we're never taught in in mathematics courses about the purpose of mathematics. You ever think about that? Mathematics does have a purpose in the Christian position. After all, a number is a divine attribute. That comes out of the doctrine of the Trinity. So we have number already, very important. And we have this discipline of mathematics, so we can then use the discipline of mathematics 
to picture God's engineering work all around us. If we would think that way when we're taught, it becomes a worshipful study. Challenging, but worshipful. So, contention here is that this there's revelation going on through God's engineering. And that carefully engineering evidence is reflective of his invisible attributes. And this is not a new thought with Paul. It's not something he cranked out because he was going up against biblically ignorant Gentiles. It actually was something he had gotten from the Old Testament. So we're back to our theme again, unity of the Testaments. For example, look at Job 12, 7 to 9. But now ask the beasts and let them teach you, and the birds of the heavens and let them tell you, or speak to the earth and let it teach you, and let the fish of the sea declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. See, that comes from Job, one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. And then, of course, we most of us know Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the firmament is declaring the work of his hands. Okay, so let's move into the text. Follow, follow Paul's argument. The next verse, focus on the attention of those who negatively react to this universal revelation of the creator. So in Romans 1, 21, it says this, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became vain in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. The rest of Paul's indictment of Gentile society deterioration continues to the end of chapter one. All the way down at the end of this section, what do we read? That people who follow unbelief, who constantly suppress and reject the knowledge of God, that they automatically are getting every day of their life in the creation. Finally, that results in a society characterized by what Paul says in Romans one thirty-two, Following the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. So that tells you the moral standards of society have been twisted. Good becomes evil, evil becomes good. Paul's analysis of the dynamic of societal decline under unbelief includes many of the social plagues we face again. Social deterioration begins with an adoption of a false view of God that's underlying all the political pressures that we're experiencing. Underneath it all is a false view of God. Romans one twenty three says, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of beasts, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. This trend, whether ancient or modern, is basically worship of nature. Nature is simply all there is. If there are a few gods here and there in nature, well, okay, but they're just part of nature like we are. The basic truth of the Bible is opposite. The basic truth of the Bible is the creator-creature distinction. That is what is being denied. So in Romans one twenty-five, Paul writes... 
they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Today, most so-called scientific cosmologies, including evolution, are just simply forms of nature worship. Paul did not come, however, to this point himself. He got it right out of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 10, 14 says, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. In other words, they're not living. They're stone statues. Come on, guys. Where is your God? All I see is a stone statue. Jeremiah 13, 25 says, This is your lot. The portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Both these passages in Jeremiah, of course, were addressed to a failing society just prior to the exile. And so so they've basically been contaminated in a systematic way uh, by, by false doctrine. Social deterioration continues with a false view of the core of human existence. So not only is there a false view of God, the false view of God automatically leads to a false view of human reality, particularly marriage and sexuality. Example, Romans one twenty-seven, And the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Obviously a homosexual passage. And Paul is not making it up. It's not new. He is reciting Old Testament material. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, there is a man who lies with a male and who, who, and those who lie with a woman, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed an abomination. There's blood guiltiness upon them. Now, within our evangelical circles, there are apologists for the LGBTQ lobby, and they cite those verses in Leviticus as exceptions pointing out that Jesus never discussed homosexuality. But the counter to their objection is this. When Jesus dealt with divorce and marriage, what was his authoritative definition of what marriage is? Here's what he said, Matthew 19.8. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but... From the beginning, it was not so. When you read a book, you have to follow the introductions where ideas first occur. The idea of binary sexuality in marriage started in Genesis chapter 2. So every subsequent passage that discusses marriage assumes that definition, because that definition is universal to all creation. So to review, the first of our three themes in viewing the whole Bible is an integrated framework. It was that it was given by God in real history through key events, events any of us could imagine being there when it happened. 
biblical truths fit reality because it's how they came to us. They came to us through reality. Second theme that we've talked about in these classes is our aim to think through biblical truth systematically, relating each fundamental truth to all the other fundamental truths. This process protects us from having some sort of theological hobby horses by providing a balanced view of all the Bible doctrine. The third theme that we just finished results from the previous two. Because God's revelation was spread over many centuries in pedagogical order, and because it's embedded in nature itself, it has a unity. The New Testament supplements the Old Testament, yes, with further revelation, but it doesn't supplant the Old Testament. Much of the New Testament alludes to Old Testament passages, but the Old and the New bring the final authority for human thought. Everyone, everywhere, knows God through life in his created environment, whether or not they have come in touch with the New Testament good news. All of us desperately need to read both the Old and New Testaments. Next, we want a review of one of the things we covered last year, a kind of warm-up to remember things. Review never hurts. We started out with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We had these events, the creation, the fall, the flood, the covenant, those four events. Those were the keys to the whole Old Testament. What is the area now that all evangelicals are embarrassed about? We don't want to talk about. It's Genesis 1 to 11. That's too controversial. We've got to get in and let's start in Genesis 12 and go on. Yeah, that's good. Build a house on sand. Don't worry about pouring a foundation or anything. Just erect the house. Well, watch what happens when the wind blows. So we have three major doctrines. Notice God, man, and nature. Creation defines those. You'll see this very graphically in the weeks to come because I'm going to go through the deity and the humanity of Jesus. I'm going to show you that for 400 years, the church had this wallowing around about who Jesus was. It's hard to think of that because we think, oh, well, gee, it's obvious. Yeah, it's obvious for us, but for four centuries, it was not obvious to church leaders to state crisply so that paganism couldn't distort it. And all these heresies were caused by the fact that they couldn't define God and man right. As late as the New Testament, and it wasn't until the church got a hold of the proper definition of God and man that they could conclude anything about who Jesus was. They kept mixing natures. You can't mix God and man. One is the creator, one is the creature. So you can't talk about Jesus Christ without that foundation. The other doctrine we had, and a key one, was evil and suffering. The fall is critical. That sets up sin. You can't define sin without the fall. See how history and doctrine go together? Sin is not just misbehavior in society. Sin goes much deeper than that. The flood is a picture of judgment salvation. 
people say, oh, I don't believe the judgment of God. Uh, this is why we are entitling the first framework session, the buried foundation. Why the word buried? <clears throat> what is it in the heart of every person this side of the fall that wants to bury it? It's sin. We want to suppress it. We want to avoid it. We want to distort it. There's too much material there that points to our guilt. There's too much material there that points to our accountability as creatures made in God's image. We have to be accountable to him who made us. Those were the first four events we covered in Genesis 1 to 11. Then we went on and we said after the Noahic flood, we have a situation developed where Noah's progeny abandoned the word of God. It's almost like it was a second fall. In violation of God's mandate to multiply and fill the earth. That's what he told Noah's progeny. Grow, multiply, and spread out across the face of the earth. But the majority of the human race tried to build a kingdom in the Mesopotamian Valley that would protect them from going out. They wanted to just stay cloistered in the Mesopotamian plain. And when they said that, they viewed it as Genesis 11, 4 puts it, as let us make a name for ourselves. You know what that expression in Genesis 11, 4 means? When it says we will make a name for ourselves, that means that the autonomous creature defines his own existence, makes up his own rules, views his own theory of truth, abandoning the scriptures, abandoning God's directive, ultimately abandoning the only meaningful pathway that you can have and still have meaning. So God called Abraham and Abraham starts a counterculture. He promises Abraham that he Will make Abraham's name great. Just, just notice this. Sometime I want to write this down. Genesis eleven four. That's what humanity at large was doing. They were trying to make a name for themselves, self-defining their identity independently of God, for quote safety end quote, which founded really a Tower of Babel or tyranny. And then immediately in the next chapter, Genesis twelve two. God says, I will make Abraham's name great. God defines existence and purpose. When God chose Abraham, what did he also do with the rest of the human race? He chose to reject them. From this time forward, around about 2000 BC, God channels all his revelation through the Jews. Abraham is the first Jew. We've entitled this section from Abraham through the Exodus, through Sinai, through the conflict and settlement down to David, which about 1000 BC, through 1000 years of history. That section carrying through Genesis 12 down to the end of 2nd Samuel, that thousand year period we have referred to as the disruptive kingdom. Why do we call it disruptive kingdom? Because the world is fat, dumb and happy without God's intervening. Gentiles made their peace with each other. They were at war with each other, but biblically they were used 
to live life in a fallen world and used to suppress the Noahic Bible. See, all people groups originally had pieces of the Noahic Bible and they lost them or they just suppressed them or they just have gradually lost that memory. All tribes, all men, all languages at one time had 11 chapters of Genesis. So there's not been a culture that far back hasn't heard. That's just human anthropology. All races and all cultures once knew the truth because they all descended from no one. They all had truth, but they suppressed the truth. They put it out of their minds. Why? Because we're sinners. We don't like to be reminded of who God is and who we are. Despite that, God disrupted, and it's a gracious disruption, just like he disrupts sin patterns in our lives. Because God cares for us, and he reaches down and he interferes with us. Sometimes it's very painful, but he does interfere. So God disrupts the world system. He intrudes this Jewish thing into history. And these thousand years set up the custodians of the word of God. We have the doctrines. We have Abraham. We have the call of Abraham, doctrinal election, justification, and faith, because those are emphasized in that event. In Romans chapter 4, what does God go back to? Justification by faith. And where does he go back for that doctrine? goes back to Abraham and his dialogue with God. Justification by faith is not new. It's Old Testament. Then we have the Exodus. And the Exodus, like the flood, teaches us judgment salvation. But it adds a new thing. It adds emphasis on blood atonement. The angel of death passes over the houses with blood on the door. The angel of Jehovah doesn't pass over because Joe looks like a good guy down there and he's got his brownie points. And I just can't help it. I'm so impressed with Joe's brownie points that I'll move on to the neighbor. The basis for going from one house to the next had nothing to do with personality, had nothing to do with what language they spoke, had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with anything except whether sacrificial blood was on the doorpost of the shelter. Nothing else. That tells us something about how God judges. So when we see that doctrine reappear in the New Testament, everybody thinks, ooh, that's very arrogant for Christians to say the only way is Jesus Christ. Well, hey, it's not just Christians. What happened at the Exodus? Then we come to Mount Sinai. And we said there, God revealed himself. So now we have the doctrines of revelation, inspiration, and canonicity. That's God's word. I pointed this out several times, and I will always point it out to myself because I need the balance. Do you notice the sequence here? Just look at the last two events. What happened first? First, you have salvation. Then, after that, you have revelation of God's will for the details of life or sanctification. That's the way he works. He calls us to himself. And then later on, we discover, gee, I have to do this. I can't do that. Um, I have to do this. The content of his will. But what happens, and just here's a mental, mental experiment. will help you think through some sloppy theology going around evangelical circles. Suppose Sinai occurred before the Exodus. 
Now we have all these commands, do's and don'ts, but we're not saved. We're not delivered. What does that show? Salvation by works. Heresy. You keep away from these trends if you just keep systematically looking at sequences and see how the Bible is arranged as a coherency because God thinks coherently. He runs history coherently and he speaks coherently. The conquest and settlement. After people are saved, after they're instructed, now comes the battle, sanctification. Does that sound familiar? That's our whole life. The pain of sanctification sets in after we know the will of God, not before. It's precisely because we do know the will of God and we're faced with adversity. We're faced with opposition. And we have pain, the pain of sanctification. The new war begins. The war begins after salvation and after instruction in the word of God. Then we have the rise and reign of David, where we begin to see what a leader ought to look like. David is a pioneer in world history. He is the one man, one leader, who broke with the modus operandi of the ancient world. David did not murder or assassinate his way to the throne. Even though a prophet of God had told him God had picked him out to be king of Israel, David did not try to kill Saul. Saul tried to kill David following the usual ancient Near Eastern tyrant protection system. But David, even though he caught Saul that time in the cave, refused to kill Saul. And eventually God led him to the throne. But think of which book in the Bible gives us comfort when we're going through mental struggles. The book of Psalms. Who wrote most of the book of Psalms? David. How come he did that? Because he struggled. On one hand, being called to a job, being called up as king, and yet year after year after year goes by, numerous assassination attempts against him. And even though he was encouraged by his military associates to kill Saul, he refused. So that's the important point about David. All these three events we have referred to, you could use any title, but I chose the king's discipline in the sense of his training, his teaching, what he wants in his kingdom. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about people already in his kingdom. Here's the way I want the king to look. So we have the golden era of Solomon, the sanctification, sanctification, the next event, sanctification, the third event, sanctification, the fourth event. They were very painful because the nation did not follow God's will, even though he had picked them out. Then we come down to the thing we're going to start this week, canonicity and prayer. We're just going to deal with the two doctrines because this is the period that introduces the silent years. From this period of time, for about four centuries, God doesn't speak. Four centuries, he withdraws from history until Jesus Christ and John the Baptist arrive on the scene. That's been 400 years. Think of it this way. If the um, year of 2020 is is here, actually 2022, think of 400 years prior. Four centuries prior is 16-something. So it would be as though God had not spoken through the Protestant Reformation. He hadn't spoken since. 
not to American history, not to the Civil War. And all of a sudden, in 2022, he starts to speak. Think of it. Would it be something so new? It would have to be something we wouldn't be used to. Our grandfathers never heard it. Our parents never heard it. Our great-grandparents never heard it. And that's why John the Baptist comes on the scene in the New Testament. There's something new going on here. It's a shift. So what we want to notice is that all these emphasize the king's discipline in preparation for the coming of Christ. We said we want to learn things systematically. So we're going to go through some more review of the thinking systematically about this material. We've shown this time and time again, I'll show it again. The reason why we do this is because if you boil down the Bible to its basics, that's the glue right there. We can't go back to this enough because our flesh, all of us drift over disconnecting the New Testament from the old. Paul was struggling against that. This is not just philosophy. It's not just religion. It's two distinct ways of looking at life. The issue is, over and over again, shall I bow to my creator in humility? Because the issue, as the Bible says, is, am I going to bow to him or not? That's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. Am I going to accept authority external from myself? Or am I going to be the authority? So if you look at history where this happened, you'll find basically biblical thought which induces monotheism. That was a basic belief for all people in the world at one time. If you go back and study history, any group of people, if you push back their history, you'll find that there's ancient monotheism. A book I recommend, if you're interested in this theme, is Paul Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts. It's an excellent book. He, he just looks at different groups that missionaries have come across. And he points out, if you listen to them, they have pieces and chunks of Genesis 1 to 11 in their rituals. So we have this fundamental difference. This is the creative creature distinction. And there's, there's a separation between God and creatures. You can't mix them together. It's not 50% God, 50% man. When we come to Jesus, we get into who he is. Whatever our view of Jesus is, it's got to be built on this separation. Jesus has two natures, not one. But Jesus doesn't mix the natures. He is God and he is man. And they are not mixed That's why it's so hard to get in our heads who he is in the sense of his substance. It's very difficult because at times in the gospel, he flashes forth in his deity. Like that instant of time when the police come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, all he has to utter is the word Jehovah from the Old Testament, which is ego and me, I am. And the police and everybody else falls backwards. These guys aren't weaklings. They're trained warriors here, and they're falling all over themselves. And all he said was, I am. Why is that? Because suddenly his deity flashed forth, and then they could see him just like that. Then he went back to being a man and walked around, and they crucified him. But the fact is, 
that in his life and in his biography, there comes these flashpoints where deity flashes out. And you have to keep that no mixture has ever occurred. This creator-creature distinction has not been done away with with the incarnation. These are everlasting distinctions. Now, you come over to the view of paganism. So now we're making that contrast. Every non-biblical view always mixes God, man, and nature together. All of them. When we studied Genesis, what did we do? We had the myth of Tiamat. Remember Tiamat myth? Tiamat's body, her spiritual body, was cut in half, and out of Tiamat's body came the heavens and the earth, materially. The gods and nature were all one. The physical universe came out of the gods. The physical universe is their body. See that mishmash that goes on? We have the same thing today in evolution. Evolution did not start with Charles Darwin. The idea that you can mix categories started back way before Darwin. Started actually with Adam and Eve. All Charles Darwin did was pick up the concept and move it over to biology. But he didn't originate it. Now let's look at the bottom line in both views. On the one hand, you have a personal sovereign God. He is in charge of everything. If God is not in charge of everything, then he is in charge of nothing. If you allow 1% chance, you have automatically destroyed the sovereignty of God. God has to be 100% in control or he is in control at all. Because once you have chance at the 1% level, it eats up all the other and finally chance overtakes order. You can't allow that. So you wind up with a personal sovereign. What is offensive to our hearts and to our fallenness is that immediately when I confess that my life is 100% of the creation and province of God, it seems I am sort of a pre-programmed being. A lot of people think if God is 100% in charge, that must be fatalism. Not if you think about it biblically. God is big enough to be sovereign and allow human responsibility. Our thinking is bound to our creature level. We think total divine control requires some sort of computer programming because that's what we would do. But God is not like us. He is the creator. We are the creatures. How he does it, we do not know. But we do know that we are ultimately responsible to him, not to our neighbor, not to the state, not to a teacher, not to anybody else. We obey those authorities because it's God's will to do that. But God is the one who, to whom our ultimate authority is fixed. As Christians in America, we need to understand that because the time may come in our society where we're going to have to decide whether we're going to obey God or whether we're going to obey man. And we're going to take our lumps if we choose to obey God. We're not going to be comfortable in that if we don't at least get this down, that we are ultimately responsible to him. Now, let's consider the bottom line in the pagan or unbelieving view. If you allow fate or chance to be in control, what does that do to human responsibility? It makes us all a victim. So now the corollary of unbelief conveniently relieves us of responsibility to the greater God. What do you suppose the sin nature loves? There is an agenda here. 
irresponsibility is not just an idea that happens. It is an insidious evil goal involved because if you can convince yourself that you're a victim, you're not responsible. It's somebody else's fault. It's the environment fault. It's this, it's that. My mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby. Something happened. It's in my genes. I have a warped DNA. But whatever it is, it's not me. I'm not responsible to any authority transcendently above me. Ultimately, the issue is, am I going to be pushed back from revelation of God, or do I submit to him? Let's turn to Genesis 3 and, and review it a moment. The most momentous moment in history as far as the events of the fall and evil are concerned. What's going to be interesting when we get into the temptation of Jesus during his life is to see parallel temptations with Eve. When Jesus was tempted according to the gospel, he was tempted in three areas. It's interesting that when Eve was tempted, she also was tempted in three areas. If we plot these three areas, she was tempted in and plot the three areas he was tempted in. Jesus Christ came back. Satan took aim. He had three bullets in his gun. Bang, bang, bang. He killed Eve. The Lord Jesus, just viewing from his humanity, the shield of faith, uh, Satan may go bang, but the bullet just went a click as it hit Christ's armor. Bang, click, bang, click. That's what happened. Satan is a genius. So we want to look at why he could do what he did. In Genesis 3, he contradicts God's mandate given to Adam, who was to pass on to his wife. Notice the text in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat thereof you will surely die. Satan then contradicts God's command. He attributes an ill intention to him. Notice how the language is phrased here in the next chapter, Genesis 3, 4 and 4 and 5. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that is translating, by the way, you will surely die or you surely not die. Translating a Hebrew grammatical construction that emphasizes certainty. So we know that every choice has a consequence and we surely know the consequences of the fall. Now here's a little practical application. We talked about being a victim versus being responsible. I ran across this book I read and a guy said he's dealing with depressed people and he's saying, you know, you can't choose your way out of a problem. So you admit you choose yourself into the problem. That's pretty tough. You have to admit first but your chooser has to be accepting that it's true. And if you're constantly thinking of yourself as a victim, you can't ever get out of the box until you change your thinking about your chooser. You are convinced you have a chooser and you make choices. The way you look at that is to check and see if you really believe it. If you tend to be passive and say, well, gee, I couldn't do it this way. I had to do it that way. Obviously, there's some factors involved. 
But if you have a view of your past or your present life that is not a consequence of your choices, then logic tells you you're never going to get out of it. Because if you're a victim now, you're going to be a victim later. God says there are consequences. And he says, you will not eat, you don't eat. It's imperative. I want you to eat, period. Let's put ourselves in Eve's position so we can think of what's going on here. Follow with me to imagine you're in the garden and you're watching the drama of Eve and Satan and you it's like a video and you have a pause button. And so you hit the pause button and then have a discussion with Eve. She says, now look, God says one thing, Satan says another. How do I know which one is true? Don't I have to test it with empirical data to find out what is true? What's wrong with this statement? It's a statement of two contradictory things. She claims she can't tell the difference between the one and the other, which is true. But they're talking about future things. Are they not? God says, if you eat, he predicts death. Over here, Satan says, if you eat, I predict no death. So the prediction, death, hasn't occurred. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. What should Eve have done and why? So this gets to something that's basic to our choosers. She says, I'm going to taste the fruit. How else am I going to know what the future holds unless I force the predictions to come true? So I can observe empirically which one works. However, we raise this question. What is her other option? What has she already slipped into? Let's see if we can do a little analysis of Eve's thoughts. She comes to you and says, I need help. I've got a problem here. I've got, on one hand, a forecast of the future this way. I've got another forecast that says, but it's not going to be that way. So now, do, do I eat or don't I? And how can I tell which is true? What has she already done? She's getting herself in a position where she is going to be the final judge of what? What's coming true or false? She has agreed to herself, bringing herself the right to be final authority, right? It's not going to be Satan or God. Who is going to conclude right from wrong? She is. So already, remember, when we started this course, I said, beware of questions that come at you, like how many times did you beat your wife last week? And you accept the question. And then no matter how you answer it, you've already incriminated yourself. What's going on? The question was loaded. So when we want to put the pause button on ease a moment, and say, wait a minute, you've got to think this one through, Eve. Somehow you have put yourself in a very dangerous position because she claims she wants to be the decider. What else has she already done? Well, by saying she's going to decide whether it's true, she said, in effect, that God's word has to meet her test. God's word is not implicitly trustworthy. If it were implicitly trustworthy, why would you have to test it? I think that is so important to grasp what we mean when we say the authority of the word of God. 
She does not have any empirical scientific historical test that she can apply without taking to herself the role of a final judge in the situation. God has set it up that way. There's no way out of this box that you can test without blowing up the box. So in the box, Eve really has only one choice. She has to accept it on authority. What else does she have to do? Well, if you accept it on authority, what must she confess about herself? That she's a mere creature and she has to operate under the authority of the creator. There's a third thing that she's done. I don't think we've noticed. I kept holding my hands out like this, spreading them to either side, my left and my right. She has put Satan's command and God's command on the same level. She's already bought into the continuity of being. That is, nature is all there is. If there is a God or gods, they are part of nature, just like humans. Satan and God differ only in degrees, not in kind. One might be a little higher. I mean, he's got a few more doctorates than Satan, but Satan's coming along. He's studying hard, and we might just have discovered a truth here or there. God might be hiding something. I've got to check this out. See what I'm saying? Authority of scripture is not some disconnected arbitrary theory. It lies at the heart of reality. The moment that we have said that God's word is equal in authority to some contradictory claim, we've already decided the creator-creature distinction cited in the very first Bible verse is wrong. It's already over. The game's done. Eve has lost her right. At this point, we want to emphasize that fallen man doesn't want the creator-creature distinction. It comes in a variety of forms, but it's ultimately the rejection of God. It's an attack upon the essence of God himself. Skipping over and finishing up here tonight, I can't leave without referring to this one thing, the results of evil. We want to see that on the Christian basis, the biblical basis, we have a radically different program, a radically different program that you'll never find outside of the scriptures. You hear people swearing and cursing God because of all the evil in the world. Well, learn how to respond to them, saying, how can God be loving and allow all this stuff to go on in the world? We can respond and ask, how can God, who is holy, not do away with the whole world? It works both ways. Why does he permit people to go to heaven? Sinners. Why does he redeem the situation? That's one quick way. But this is a far more powerful way. The person who is fussing that the scriptures are immoral and wrong are left with this. The pagan mind finally has to accept that good and evil go on forever and ever. They're never separated. They're never, one never goes away. They just go on mixed forever. And this is why plans of politicians to redeem the world don't work. You know why? Because all of these political schemes deny that we're fallen creatures. And you can't concentrate power in fallen creatures. So there's no solution on the human will to sin in the world. Christ has to be the solution. You'll see the sign, the yin-yang, even the Korean flag has it. But I've twisted it so it's this way. And to be fair to the Koreans, um, that, that yin-yang has another implication. The oriental thinking, sweet and sour, cold and hot and so on. 
It's just a way of expressing that. But when it applies to the problem, it's wrong. When it's applied to ethics, it's completely wrong because it makes good and evil co-equal. Are they co-equal? They can't be. If they're co-equal, one is as powerful as the other. How how does it get ever resolved? Who gets high score forever? Who wants to be reincarnated to show up as someone's pet cow, be slaughtered in a slaughterhouse, and then show up as Aunt Hilda and eat a cow, and then show up as an insect and have somebody hit you with a fly swatter, and then show up as Uncle Joe and die? You really want to go through that cycle over and over and over to be reincarnated in a world of everlasting mixture of good and evil? I mean, come on, get real. Finally, in the Christian view, God is the one who is eternally good. He had never had any evil. In him is life. And in him is no darkness at all. We have the creation and the fall distinct. So there was a time period between creation and the fall when there was no evil. And therefore, God did not create evil. Evil came in after the creation by choice, by rebellion of the creature. So when you see a baby die, just remember why. Consequences. It was a warning on the label. We have good and evil and we have judgment. What is happening and why sanctification is so painful is that this process of separating good and evil is starting to take place in our lives. Preparation for the final eternal separation forever and ripping those two apart is very, very painful because it's so intermixed in our lives. So that's the story of the Bible. Next time we're going to start looking at the end of the Old Testament. I would help if you read the notes from last year, page 56 to the end of the chapter, to get a running start on the new stuff. By reading the old stuff, go back and look what we said about the exile and what was going on in Daniel and so on.